This is the Data Science Conversations podcast with Damien Dehan and Dr. Philip Diesinger. We feature cutting-edge data science and AI research from the world's leading academic minds and industry practitioners, so you can expand your knowledge and grow your career. This podcast is sponsored by Data Science Talent, the data science recruitment experts. Welcome to the Data Science Conversations podcast. My name is Damien Deacon, and as usual, I'm here with my co-host, Philip Deasinger. How's it going, Philip? It's going great, Damien. Thanks. Uh, looking forward to the great topic that we have here today. Indeed. We've had a few months break, but now we're back and raring to go and very much looking forward to presenting you with a really interesting piece of academic research. Today, we're talking about how science is communicated and often miscommunicated in online media. Our expert guest on this very important topic is Agnes Horvat. Agnes, we're delighted to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Excited to be here. Great. So by way of background, Agnes is currently an assistant professor in communication and computer science at Northwestern University, Illinois where she directs the Technology and Social Behavior PhD program. Prior to moving to the US, she obtained a PhD in physics from the University of Heidelberg in Germany. After that, she embarked on her postdoc research at the Northwestern Institute on Complex Systems. Her research topic lies at the intersection of computational social science, social computing, and communication, and uses interdisciplinary approaches from network and data science. Agnes's research and teaching has been recognized with the National Science Foundation Career and CRII Award. Her research group, the Lab on Innovation Networks and Knowledge, investigates how networks can lead to bias in information sharing and processing on digital platforms. So Agnes is uniquely positioned to tell us all about what happens when science gets communicated online. So Agnes, perhaps we just start with how you made the journey from physics uh, PhD to your current area of research. During the PhD, I did a lot of network modeling, inference of connections. I think some of the people who you are um, interested in reaching might know this by the name of link prediction. It was a hot topic, I don't know, 10 years ago. So through that research, I, I did manage to get a feeling for how data science was used in the biological space, but then also in the social space. And the latter appealed far more to me, given my interests at the time. And that has not changed since then. So I moved to the U.S. to join someone who's doing cutting-edge computational social science, and that has been a leading direction throughout my work. So the, the broad area is quite interesting today because we have these massive data sets that all of us are seeing pop up and uh, we have better and better tools to, to understand what's going on in those data sets. And then the hope is that some of those old questions from the social sciences, from communication can be answered with those new data sets and new tools. Great. And perhaps you can give us a maybe a brief overview of where science is currently in terms of the, the digital era we find ourselves in. 
Yeah, so as someone who studied physics and um, is uh, is very excited about natural sciences and STEM in general, I found myself in a world where where some of the scientific findings that um, scholars work hard on discovering are not reaching the public appropriately, maybe not fast enough, maybe not accurately enough, maybe not packaged in the right context, and I think that's a really big problem. Uh, sciences role does not stop when the paper is published, when the discoveries have been made public to the peers in the community, but it uh, ideally would reach taxpayers and the younger generation who can then make better decisions for our future. So, so in general, I think the state of science is not worse than, than it was uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But I think some of the questions are are still the same and it's our job to to finally do more. And so I and my research team have joined that work where we would try and understand better how science is disseminated. We like to use some of the new platforms, digital media um, sources to better understand how that might look like in in real settings. And then to to try and use that knowledge to improve on some of the processes that we know all are problematic, one of them being related to misinformation, the other being related to biases and what type of science is communicated. And then maybe a third one that I'll, I'll preface here is related to who is involved in, in sharing that science. So what audiences are engaging with science? Thanks, Agnes. Uh, you, you already talked about uh, communicating basically results of science. Yeah. When you use the term, do you what, what kind of audiences do you have in mind? Is it communicating outcomes of scientific research to the general population or is it communication between scientists or mix of all of those? So ideally, mix of those two, um, plus communicating science to, to policymakers, governments, the institutions that can enact change. Think of problems around climate change. I, I think we, we are past the state where we think that individuals, lay audiences, um, or individual scientists uh, could make big breakthroughs. So it's important, as you are pointing out, to, to make sure that we communicate science properly within academic communities, um, scholars talking to scholars and, and making sure that the cutting edge research reaches uh, relevant colleagues, but then also communicating with general audiences, the public, the importance of this, this part cannot be overstated. I'm sure all of you are thinking about the pandemic and thinking about the many ways in which the pandemic showed us how important it was to reach people. And regardless of demographic, regardless of background, regardless of location, um, to make sure that they are aware of the most important results so that they can change their behavior accordingly or adjust their daily lives accordingly. And some of that research was in flux, as, as you might remember. So doing this communication in a timely manner, in a very effective way is, is essential. And then the third piece, as I mentioned, interested government, interested policymakers um, should also have the access to not necessarily the nitty gritty of the research, but the, the main takeaways with an understanding, of course, of the assumptions that went into the model so that they can, they can present this to decision makers and they can make sure that the right policies are enacted. So between the scientists who conducts the research and then 
the audience, uh, there's obviously some communication channels, some networks, some uh, medium in between, yeah, maybe news outlets. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and what you focused on in your own research? I mentioned that science is not in, in a worse shape than it was maybe 30 years ago. But one main change between then and today is that we have all these new platforms, digital media platforms that have changed fundamentally the way we communicate with each other, the way uh, formal and informal information sharing is happening. All of you are very well aware that social media has fundamentally changed the way we interact with our uh, friends, um, acquaintances, with our larger audiences. Um, news have changed quite a bit. Digital news have revolutionized the access to news stories at a very quick pace. It has also left some of the local um, journalism in crisis, meaning that um, a lot of people who traditionally would have uh, obtained news about science and technology from their local newspaper cannot do that now. Um, so there are interesting changes in terms of the news-related landscape. And then the, we have these new platforms that act as knowledge repositories, as encyclopedia, online encyclopedia, that supplement for many, uh, especially from the younger generation, the, the information sources that would have been traditionally books. So we have all those very different channels. A lot of us are blogging and reaching our audiences through some individualized forms of communication. And so there are these, there's this wealth of, of sources um, that people use currently to obtain information about science and technology that are really important. We don't currently understand how science communication works on those platforms, at least not perfectly. You talked already about the difference between how science is basically consumed or distributed today versus maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, is there also a difference in sheer volume? I would expect that probably there's much more to be reported now than there was before, but I'm, I'm not sure about this. Is that something that you looked into? Absolutely. Scientific production has exploded. The growth in the number of articles that are being shared currently has grown exponentially over the past years. We have seen this trend increase. And so also the type of research that is being done is far more interdisciplinary. It's far more team driven, meaning that the experts that are available to review this work are also stretched thin here so that a quality um, control is, is becoming an increasing issue with uh, growth in science, with the growth in complexity and interdisciplinarity of the science that is being produced, and with the um, diminished availability of people to do that quality control. So with this, this paradigm shift of, of scientific communication, uh, there's something that you call a post-normal science. Can you talk us a little bit through that concept, that idea? 30 years ago, Ravitz and Funtovets had an interesting piece that prefaced some of the issues that we are seeing now as well. Um, they talked quite a bit about how already at that time, science was becoming more and more different for the, the very traditional idea of science, the normal science that was very much centered on puzzle solving, guided by curiosity, it could be extremely productive. They were saying how climate risk, environmental changes created a need to 
to have a different approach to science that is more um, aware of the fact that some values might be in dispute, that the stakes are high, that decisions need to be made very urgently, uh, and that there's some inherent uncertainty in these problems. When you look at this um, and think through this, then you realize that the COVID pandemic has been very much like this in so many ways. So that's why all of us were going back to this, this fundamental piece, because it also highlighted the importance of this tension between having to make accurate, urgent decisions based on lacking information where the different stakeholders had very different opinions. So, and this is what we call post-normal science, and um, this is what we are concerned with when it comes to research today. So not just the research that happens in a silo, in a behind closed doors that is fulfilling for the scientist's curiosity and personal development, but it's very aware of the context, very aware of who the scientist is, what sort of questions, positions they bring to the table, and what type of problem they are trying to solve with broad impacts that goes beyond an individual curiosity or moving science for, forward. Uh, you talked already about different networks and the role they play in, in propagating science or scientific results, basically through the audience. Could you highlight a little bit the role that social media plays within this concept of post-normal science? So, so social media has some, some really important features that make it quite appealing these days. On the, on the one hand, the diffusion of information can happen at a scale that, and at the pace that is unprecedented in many ways. The sharing on social media is not the broadcast type model anymore where there's one central message source and everyone else is getting the same information, but we are connected with uh, with our personal networks, with our family, our friends, our, our colleagues. So the, the structure of these networks enables a very different sharing. And a lot of the work uh, in this space has, has focused on the role of echo chambers, on the role of filter bubbles, and just to highlight the, the importance of, of realizing how information can get trapped in certain communities and how we can get into a situation where by the sheer sharing and the sheer volume of the information on social media, one can have a very interesting understanding of the state of affairs um, in science or in a certain topic. So social media has this, this um, role in picking up the pace of information diffusion. It has the role of, of changing the networks, the sources we see as, as sharing information. And then finally, it has this um, familiarity, this intimacy, where, where I think a lot of us tend to trust some sources in our networks more than others. And those sources can, of course, spread misinformation in, in many cases. Do you have some sort of quantitative uh, data for how much researchers themselves rely on social media? We have seen literature on uh, increasing percentages of um, scholars who are using um, social media. So somewhere around 75-85% of scholars have reported promoting their work on online platforms, whether on social media or some of the knowledge repositories. This is a trend that um, has been increasing quite a bit and the most broad research areas are, are engaging in this type of behavior now. 
So Agnes, what occurs to me is that most people will probably be familiar with how very robust science gets published. And then unfortunately, someone who may be well-meaning and very influential, but they don't necessarily have a good grasp of the, the underlying science can take something, put their own narrative on it on social media. And then that almost becomes the standard um, message that gets communicated. But that's not the full picture of, of scientific misinformation. So perhaps you could elaborate on, on that, please, for us. One example that comes to my mind when you talk, Damien, is that all of us have seen in the context of the COVID pandemic, once again, the anti-vaxxer community being very strongly present online. And they go back to this one piece from the 90s, a paper that has falsely claimed the link between autism and vaccination in children. And this research has been found to be flawed on many accounts and has been retracted in the scientific context meaning that the research community said that this was a baseless claim given the, the problems with the way the research was set up. Uh, science's way of self-correction then kicks in through this process of retractions where, where the journals retract or take the paper back and they signal it very clearly on their platforms that this research is not valid. And this is a process that uh, I feel like we, we have not studied well enough or in enough detail and that introduces an interesting form of misinformation. Uh, where it's not due to typically to political uh, motivations, but through false uh, scientific claims that we get a wrong picture about a certain problem. Um, retractions can be quite pervasive. So just to give you a sense, overall, maybe four out of a thousand papers are retracted. So the sheer number is not that uh, impressive, but the reach through some of these new platforms and some of the social media platforms that uh, are highly spreadable can be problematic. So our research question, our main motivation was to try and understand how audiences that include scientists, but also the public, interact with um, retracted papers on various platforms, on social media, in news, on uh, knowledge repositories, and via blogs. You talked about harmful uh, scientific publications. Is the harm coming from misinformation that just keeps spreading and circulating? Is it basically what happens after the retraction, or is it that the, the problem occurs when papers are shared widely before they are even being retracted and then that information kind of uh, manifests. So one of the most surprising findings that we made in this research was that actually work that gets retracted in the future is shared more often on most of these platforms, including social media, after publication. Uh, we did extensive comparisons with comparable, similar papers that came out uh, around the same time, in the same venue, had the same number of authors with the same sort of prestige. And what we found was that papers that get retracted in the future have a wider attention or shared more broadly after publication. So long before we know that results are flawed. And if you think about this finding, on the one hand, it's concerning because this means that people hear about problematic uh, findings 
more uh, than uh, potentially more than about uh, correct findings. But then also it it talks a little bit about how uh, how the process is handled currently. So if you don't have high visible science, the visibility doesn't lead to the scrutiny that is needed to retract the piece. Retraction itself in academia is, is this complicated process that scientists are trying to be very careful about, also because of the the way uh, research is seen in the public eye. It would be very problematic if we would retract every paper that makes a, a, a small mistake for those types of errors. We have um, error correction, but retraction is, is quite substantial as an intervention and also as a, as a way to signal that this is, this is fundamentally wrong. I was just going to ask, how long does it take a full retraction process typically? There's no typical length. I, I would say the range uh, goes from a couple of months to years. Um, sometimes these uh, false findings can can survive for quite a long time. What's interesting and I'm hopeful that it can become useful down the line is that on social media, in particular on Twitter, we have seen signs of people being more skeptical about uh, research that is going to be retracted well before it gets retracted. And one way to think about this is that um, there is some interesting signal in the community of users that talks about research on Twitter. Keep in mind, this community is comprised of scholars on the one hand, but then also um, the lay public, science communicators, practitioners. We oftentimes see bots involved in this in this process. Um, and yet it's, it's very interesting to see that there are some encouraging signals, some signals of quality that could guide us to uh, where we should look closer if we wanted to uh, speed up that retraction process. And the actual event of the retraction, does this reduce the attention that a publication gets immediately? Is that measurable? It is measurable. And unfortunately, the bad news is that it does not. If you look at this carefully across social media news, um, you see that the trend in attention has been decreasing way before the retraction has been issued. So the retraction itself is not effective at curbing the spread of this sort of misinformation. When it comes to scientific communities, scientific communities can go to the origin, the publication site, and there typically they can see that the paper has been retracted. What happens on social media typically is that there's no way to flag a tweet that mentions a retracted paper with, hey, the research has been retracted. And I think this is actually something that social media platforms Twitter being one example, could attempt to do a sort of uh, flagging of the messages, but currently that's not happening. And uh, historically, uh, did you see whether there's more retractions now than there were before? Is the, does this have something to do with the peer review process? Maybe this higher volume also? So retractions are on the rise. We have seen um, many retractions related to the COVID pandemic. 
which again is not surprising given how quickly researchers, publishers had to move to get some of the most important findings in front of the uh, decision makers. Um, so there was an important trade-off between accuracy and, and spending time on, on the research. So clearly this is an increasing problem. So we want to be more aware and we want to make sure that it's not just the academic communities that can identify retractions in a timely way, but that's also um, the case with audiences that don't have a formal training in science, but are interested in, in uh, learning about science and tech and, and do so via social media platforms. The challenges for peer review have increased, and we've, we've been seeing that for a number of years due to the growth in papers, due to the publish or perish culture in academia. So we are incentivized to publish more. That's uh, the most important survival mechanism for scholars in, in academia. And then it just puts additional burdens on, on um, peer review that is, as we know, a process that's based on volunteer work in many ways. So um, scholars review others' work as part of their service, almost always without getting major recognition, let alone pay for that. So it's a process that relies on science's ability to, to do this, uh, this quality control, and it's, it's becoming harder and harder. Could it be argued that social media is actually speeding up the discovery of problematic research because it makes it into the public domain earlier? Is that something you've seen? Yes, absolutely. So social media is is important in the sense that it speeds up um, this sharing of opinions and it can involve uh, audiences that typically don't have anything to say in this process. Um, however, there are very important caveats when it comes to using social media as a, as a red flag system, because we know that social media is, is far more prone to spread false information than true information in various other contexts beyond science. So I don't think at any point in time we'll want to have social media adjudicate the um, veracity of a paper or the trustworthiness of the paper. However, there are voices on social media who can do some important signaling that we might want to consider in addition to other types of evidence and in addition to taking a very careful look at each individual case. We know that these platforms have not been created with some of these important functionalities in mind that we see them fulfill. So one of them is now sharing science. Social media, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit have not been created with these functions in mind, and yet they are now taking on prominent roles in the dissemination of science. And I think we are in a really interesting time uh, where we have to negotiate this relationship between what are the potential benefits and what are the many very apparent um, uh, drawbacks of these platforms. Agnes, uh, which kind of data sources do you use for your research and what kind of methods do you apply? I spent quite some time building collaborations with companies or NGOs that would have um, data sources that are relevant to some of these questions. Uh, a big partner for this type of work is Altmetric, a company that has been collecting for the past 10 years mentions of research articles on various digital platforms. So they have a really comprehensive data 
set that is looking at how uh, articles are mentioned on social media, in the news, on YouTube, uh, in policy documents, on patents. So they are doing this this uh, important work that um, lays the groundwork essentially for, for some of the explorations, um, some of the descriptions and modeling that we are doing then. For this particular project, uh, we also had a very valuable collaboration with the Center for Scientific Integrity that maintains the Retraction Watch database. They shared with us and they continue sharing their updated data sets with us, which enable us to connect the retraction information with some of the online attacks attention trends um, so that we can we can do these comparisons at scale and we can break these down by what was the reason behind the retraction, what journals were affected, which scholars were affected, and so on. So there's a really important wealth of data underlying this. We are also working with the Web of Science. That's um, another data source that uh, lets us look into citations, topics, collaboration patterns over time, um, important pieces to consider when we look at science as a team effort and guided by the groups of co-authors behind some of these projects. And if somebody would like to play with the data themselves, is there any uh, places or sources where they can find those? So most of the data sets, you need to pay to access them. Other data sources, um, you just sign a non-disclosure agreement and say how you are going to use the, the data, and then you get access to it. In terms of methods, because um, I think that's another component we we always think about a lot, we try to to go for the tools and approaches that um, will will give us the level of accuracy that is needed for us to make um, uh, confident claims about this. So whenever we typically, of course, would like to do things like determination of um, uh, skepticism automatically, because that's that's easier at this scale, uh, we oftentimes see that that's not possible. So uh, we tend to do a lot of data cleaning, a lot of manual coding, a lot of uh, curation, a lot of checking between sources. So I think as data scientists, that's still top of mind, um, despite some of the advances in, in automated tools to, to clean our data sources, there's still a lot that uh, needs to be done in this semi-manual fashion. We run a lot of machine learning models and oftentimes regressions just to to make sure that we are um, speaking to different audiences and uh, uh, do so with the tools that they are most familiar with. The experience, as always, is that if you have quality data and you have a robust trend in the data, then regardless of the method, you will find identify that trend. So typically we try to stay away from models that are um, overly black box, especially in the social sciences where you want to identify mechanisms, you want to uh, know why you found a certain outcome, a certain score, then it's, it's something that we, we are yeah, very aware of. That's fantastic, Agnes. Um, would you have any uh, final comments, uh, maybe perhaps some advice to both academic researchers and the lay consumers of uh, scientific research about how we together tackle or uh, reduce the problem of miscommunication? 
million dollar question. Um, <laughs> um, so yes, I think there's um, there's a shared responsibility here. All of us can do a little bit more. On the one hand, in terms of scientists, scientists have a responsibility in making sure that their uh, scholarship is not misrepresented, that they um, look online, how social media um, audiences are talking about their research and um, speak up whenever that's not in alignment with the intended message and with the actual research. In terms of the public, I think it's very important to be aware that that science has its own problems. Um, it's not easy to, to know where those problems are uh, if you are not within the ivory tower and uh, in academic enterprises. But I think just having an open mind to and uh, probably even a critical uh, mindset, even when it comes to research, is, is helpful. Following best practices and educating ourselves in terms of um, how digital spaces can inform and misinform us is essential. Just staying informed is probably the best we can do. And then I think there's a big burden in terms of the institutions and decision makers who uh, need to step up and rise to the occasion and, and do more in terms of swifting through the information sources that are out there that we know that in the current information ecosystem spread a lot of misinformation. I think it's up to them to solve the problem at a more systematic level. And the solutions are not easy. If they would be, we would have figured this out already. But this is work in progress. And I think all of us, uh, regardless of our role, have to be doing our share. I think that very nicely brings today's episode to its conclusion. Agnes, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you and we wish you the best with your research endeavors at Northwestern. Thank you for having me. And thank you also to my co-host, uh, Philip Diesinger, and of course, to you guys for listening. Please do remember to check out uh, the show notes and our other episodes at datascienceconversations.com. And in the show notes for this episode, you will find the GitHub repository for the research that we talked about and also links to the publications relating to some of the fantastic work that Agnes and her team have done. We look forward to having you with us on the next show. 